A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the vegetable lamb of Tartary, a legendary creature that appeared in uh, medieval and Renaissance European bestiaries and travelogues, such as the the travels of Sir John Mandeville. If you haven't heard part one of this series yet, this is one where you should really go back and and check that out first so you'll know what we're talking about today. Uh, But if you're rejoining us after last time, a quick refresher on these legends. The idea was that somewhere in Tartary, which is a, a vast stretch of the Asian mainland, including Uh, what is now Central Asia, parts of China, all of Mongolia, and the whole eastern part of Russia, Uh, there was said to live a type of zoophyte or plant animal, a a creature with both animal and vegetable properties, combining aspects of a sort of bush or shrub with a sheep or a lamb. And some sources, like Sir John Mandeville, describe a plant that grows gourd-like fruits, and when you cut these gourds open, they reveal fully formed lambs inside, tiny little lambs which have flesh and bone and blood. He says they're real lambs, and I ate one of the (laughs) lambs, and it was good. Other sources describe something even more fantastical. I think these are usually sources that come a little bit later than Mandeville. Um, They say that there is a plant that grows a fully formed adult lamb or sheep, which is attached to the ground via a plant stem that grows into its stomach. 
and the lamb can only survive while there is still herbage for it to graze on within the radius of the stem. So the stem is kind of like a tether. And once it eats all of the grass within reach, it starves to death unless it is killed and eaten by wolves or by humans first. And this lamb or sheep is also said to be a real animal in composition, having bones and blood. And uh, in whichever form, this creature is known under many different names, but the most, commons, uh, the most common ones would be like the Lamb of Tartary, the Tartar Lamb, or the Boromets or the Baromets. Now, toward the end of the last episode, we talked about phylogenetic reasons that you would not expect to actually see an organism like this. So we can be pretty sure, uh, without knowing anything else, that this did not actually exist, because... Mm-hmm. Of course, plants and animals may have many individual characteristics that are superficially similar, uh, whether for some adapted reason like mimicry or just by chance converging ecological needs and so forth. Uh, But a plant will never actually grow a sheep that has actual muscle flesh and bones and blood. So the question is, where did these legends actually come from? And a couple of major explanations have been offered over the centuries. One very good source that I referred to in the last episode, and I'm going to keep talking about in this one, is a book by a 19th century English naturalist named Henry Lee, and it's called The Vegetable Lamb of Tartary. This was published in 1887. Now, uh, in that Garuba paper that I referenced in the first episode, uh, the author points out that that various folks over uh, over the years, sort of in the the mythic era of the Boromets, ever since at least you know the 17th century, uh, during that period where where uh, commentators have known that there's no such thing, but have been curious as to why such a thing might have been invented and invented over time, um, that uh, that you know various folks have uh, have chimed in on it. And brought up various plant specimens, quote, natural and manipulated to possibly explain it. Right. And so one of the um, possible explanations that, uh, that has been brought forth was the, the woolly fern explanation. And uh, this, is, this is one of the possible explanations that Rose mentions, uh, Carol Rose mentions in passing. And specifically, it was suggested that the fern's rhizome or, uh, you know, the, the, the root system might be the lamb in question. Uh, and this is actually reflected in the scientific name for this uh, species, uh, Sabodium baromets, uh, and it's also known as the golden chicken fern. And uh, I included a picture of, uh, of this for you, Joe. I actually ended up going to the Atlanta Botanical Garden over the weekend, and I, hmm. I, I didn't get a chance to ask anybody if they had one of these around, but I kept looking. I was on the lookout for uh, this chicken fern, for this uh, possible uh, <laughs> uh, explanation for the, the vegetable lamb of Tartary, but I did not see it. Yeah, nice furry fern. I mean, it does, it does look an awful lot like fur. Mm-hmm. This explanation, I believe, first arose at the end of the 17th century. So as we discussed uh, in the previous part, by this time, authors were already skeptical of the zoophyte story, and they started coming up with alternative ways of sourcing the myth. And Henry Lee chronicles this by noting that in 1698, a Sir Hans Sloan offered a presentation to the Royal Society of London of a very strange object – And in his paper, he provides an illustration. Rob, I've attached a a copy of this for you to look at, but we can read his illustration and then add anything we want. So uh, I'm going to read from the section of Sloan's paper that Lee quotes here, but I I made some abridgments because it was kind of long. So Sloan writes, 
The figure represents what is commonly but falsely in India called the Tartarian Lamb, sent down from thence by a Mr. Buckley. This was more than a foot long, as big as one's wrist, having seven protuberances, and towards the end some footstalks about three or four inches long, exactly like the, fo- like the footstalks of ferns, both without and within. Most part of this was covered with a down of a dark yellowish snuff color, some of it a quarter of an inch long. It seemed to be shaped by art to imitate a lamb, the roots or climbing parts being made to resemble the body, and the extant foot stalks the legs. I have been assured by Mr. Brown, who has made very good observations in the East Indies, that he has been told by those who lived in China that this down or hair is used by them for the stopping of blood in fresh wounds, as cobwebs are with us, (laughs) and I'll come back to that, and that they have it in so great esteem that few houses are without it. But on trials I have made of it, though I may believe it innocent, uh, yet I am sure it is not infallible." Now, I have several things to say about this. First of all, I I suspect Sloan is wrong that the Lamb of Tartary is actually a legend in India or anywhere in Asia, because as far as I can tell, this was a legend in Europe about Asia, not a legend in Asia itself. Like we talked about um, mm-hmm. Engelbert Kampfer in the last episode, who traveled all about Asia, and he certainly went to Persia, but like different parts of Russia and all over – and I think he said that nobody knew what he was talking about when he asked about this. Right. Yeah. It's like they don't know what it's about. They don't know what I'm talking about uh, when I bring this up. It's just pure invention uh, and European invention, to be clear. But the other thing I would add to this, and this is a sidebar, but I couldn't let it go. Were cobwebs, as in spiderwebs, actually <laughs> used by the English to stop blood flow when somebody had a big cut? They're bleeding profusely. Like, oh, no, Johnny got brained with an axe. Somebody get a bunch of spiders. Yeah, I, I had not heard this before, and I feel like it would have come up. I would have at least seen it on Outlander, you know? Yeah, exactly. So I looked this up, and yes, this apparently was a remedy for bleeding in some traditional European medicine. So the the source I found on this was a book by Kathleen Stocker called Remedies and Rituals, Folk Medicine in Norway and the New Land, published by the Minnesota Historical Society in 2007. And this comes in a section of the book talking about uh, home remedies of Scandinavian peoples. And she says that in some cases they would cram parts of beehives and wasp nests into their wounds because they believed it would help make the blood clot. And apparently some of them did the same thing with spider webs. So here's a quote that Stalker includes quote, stopping blood with cobwebs was so common that children learned to apply the remedy themselves says Hilda Kongsberg born 1899 in Rolvsoy, East Norway. And then this is quoting Kongsberg. When we children were playing, we sometimes fell and got hurt. Even for deep wounds or a badly pinched finger, we would find cobwebs, kingelvev in her dialect. Sprinkling finely shaved sugar in the wound first, we would stuff it with the kingelvev and wrap a rag around it. Soon it would heal. Hmm. Uh, folks, don't try this at home. I think there may be some hygiene issues here. I would, I would recommend sticking with sterile bandages if at all possible. The the other detail also gets me. So it's not just putting like cramming spider webs in your wound, but also sugar, shaved mm-hmm. sugar. 
Yeah, sugar, something sweet, uh, and then also uh, a little spider web, a little bit of that uh, Kingelvev. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I was wondering if the reasoning is you want the blood to clot, and these are both things that are sticky, sugar and spider mm. webs. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it does go to show that, yeah, I, I wouldn't see this in Outlander. I should be watching that show Vikings, and then I'm, <laughs> and surely somebody's going to stop up a wound with some, with some Kingelvev. Well, as a as a commentary note on this sidebar, I will also say this just just makes me think of regression to the mean. Uh, we have a whole episode on that concept if you want to check it out. But uh, as as a note of of scientific uh, intellectual hygiene, you can't know if a treatment works just by giving it to somebody who's in a bad state and then seeing if they get better. E.g., if a person with a cut stops bleeding, because people often get better on their own. You have to have a control group. You take bleeding people split them up randomly some get spider webs some get some kind of control and then you'd have to see if the people with spider webs do better than the control group not just if somebody with a spider web happens to get better right right i mean yeah again it's like if you um you're having some sort of ailment that's bothering you and you just decide to try some sort of a, a weird tea and uh, then you end up feeling better. Well, uh, maybe the tea helped, but maybe it didn't. Maybe you just happened to be drinking the weird tea whilst your body was going uh, about the, its regular healing regime. Right. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the, uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Uses directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
a new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, coming all back to uh, Hans Sloan. So Sloan, at the end of the 17th century, uh, this was the year 1698, he believes he has identified the origin of the Boromets legend, and it is this little quadrupedal plant sculpture that is built out of the downy rhizome of a Chinese species of fern. Now, over the following centuries, a few additional specimens of this sort of Chinese plant sculpture were publicized by European collectors and museums, and many authors clearly believed this was indeed the source of the myth. They thought they had cracked it. You'll remember in the last episode, I read that passage from Erasmus Darwin's naturalistic poem, The Botanic Garden, where mm-hmm. he writes about the Boromats. The lines were, um, even round the pole, the flames of love aspire and icy bosoms feel the secret fire. Cradled in snow and fanned by Arctic air shines gentle Boromets, thy golden hair. So why does Darwin specify golden hair there when a lot of the older sources said white hair if they said the color at all? Well, Henry Lee in his uh, book believes this is because Darwin is buying into the rhizome theory. So Mm. these lamb or dog sculptures had a more golden or tan color because that's the nature of the plant. The, The fibers coming off of the fern rootstock were not white. They were like golden or tan or brown. So Lee thinks this is not the correct explanation for the origin of the lamb legend, and I think I agree with him. But what's his reasoning? Well, he goes on a long discussion of the known properties of the ferns used to make these sculptures. 
Uh, he says, first of all, it is worth noting that we have no evidence of these sculptures predating the legend. Examples only show up long after the legend was already known. So if there is any link at all, and we don't know that there is, but if there is any link, why not suppose that the legend inspired the fern root sculptures and not the other way around? Furthermore, there are actually only a handful of specimens of these sculptures. So they are a little, you know, quadrupedal animal-looking thing. Somebody is clearly made out of this this fern rhizome with the stems cut to look like legs of a sheep or a dog or something. Mm-hmm. But are we sure? I mean, so we have like four or five of these, maybe uh, maybe in total. Are we sure they were ever widespread enough to have given rise to this story? But then, uh, so these are, I think, the more minor concerns. Lee gets to the really serious objections to this explanation after this. First of all, he says, these ferns do not grow in in the land that was then known as Tartary. So Tartary, again, was the more northern part of the Asian mainland at the time. These uh, plants are from the southern part of the Asian mainland. They're from, like, parts of northeastern India, and they're from southern China and, like, uh, I believe, the, the uh, Malaysian Peninsula. Hmm. So this would have the legend sourcing them in the wrong place. And also the fern in no way really matches the botanical properties of the plant described in the stories, except that it is downy. Uh, so it's uh, said to grow from a seed that is like a gourd or a melon. Ferns are nothing like this. They don't grow from a seed like a gourd or a melon. Furthermore, some of the legends say that these seeds were deliberately planted by the people around, indicating that this plant, whatever it was, if it existed, is used in some kind of agriculture, and these ferns are not like that. Also, what are we to make of the early version of the story, like the the one told by Sir John Mandeville, or the person claiming to be Sir John Mandeville, saying that, okay, you take one of these gourds, you cut it open, and then inside the fruit, that's where you find the lamb. That that doesn't resemble this fern you know, animal sculpture in any way. And finally, the color thing. The legends uh, describe the wool of the vegetable lamb as white when they mention the color at all, and the woolly fibers of the fern rhizome are more golden or tan. Yeah, I mean, you you look at at actual photographs of of this fern, and it it does it does look it looks furry. It looks like Alf hath died and ferns hath sprung <laughs> from his body, you know. Um, and I'll, I'll also add that this uh, illustration you shared uh, with, the, with the stems coming up, this is from Philosophical Transactions, a little uh, black and white illustration. Uh, you know, these, the, these actually, to, to me anyway, they look kind of like lamb chops, the way that they have them angled. There's yeah. this, like curvature to them. And you do see that curvature in images uh, of the actual fern, the actual woolly fern, but... But I, I, but I, I only really draw this comparison when I'm thinking about lamb and lamb meat, and I'm looking at these two images. I'm not sure if I saw this in the wild. I would think, whoa, this is totally the body of a of a dead brown sheep. Yeah, if it were, I mean, if it were the lamb chops thing, obviously, like you're saying, that would have to be subliminal because I think these uh, these these footstalks here are supposed to be the legs of the lamb, like the downy mm. part. The rhizome is the body. And then the stalks coming off of it are the legs. But yeah, they, they do look like the bones poking out of a rack of lamb. Yeah. After the uh, the so-called Frenching is done to the bones, to use yeah, the ship's but it, term. <laughs> but, but certainly the whole thing with the yeah, – if, if you cut into the rhizome, you're not going to find blood. You're not going to find bones and, and so forth. So right. yeah, that, that doesn't hold up at all. 
So anyway, uh, Lee summarizes by saying, even if I had no better explanation to offer, I should be led to the conclusion that the identification of these tawny toy dogs made in China from the root of a wild fern, the spores of which are as small as dust, with the vegetable lambs of Scythia, that being another name for this, uh, another name used for this region known as Tartary, Mm -hmm. you know, the Central Asian kind of region whose white fleeces were found within the ripe and opening fruit of a cultivated plant raised from a large seed was obviously erroneous and that the origin of the rumor must be sought for elsewhere. And you know what? I'm going to say I agree. But uh, Lee has another explanation, and I I think he he offers some pretty compelling evidence that this is the right one. The other explanation is that the Lamb of Tartary legend originates from a confused string of misinterpretations of observations of the cotton plant. That's right, because yeah, what do we have with cotton? Well, we have pods ripening and opening to reveal wool, uh, essentially, or something very similar to wool. And this lines up very closely uh, you know, with, with what we see uh, in the myth as well. Um, Lee throws this back to, uh, the, to the, the writings of Herodotus and uh, Theophrastus, uh, whose, uh, whose writings do seem to de- describe something like cotton. Um, uh, Herodotus, writing in the 5th century BCE on a plant found in India, uh, says, quote, And further there are trees which grow wild there, the fruit of which is a wool exceeding in beauty and goodness that of sheep. The natives make their clothes of this tree wool. Right. Okay. So this is a mysterious plant to Herodotus because he comes from, you know, this, he comes from a culture in which cotton is not normally known. So he says, you know, I've read reports that something's going on in India where they can grow sheep's wool out of fruits on trees. I don't know how mm-hmm. they do that, but it's, it's really good wool. Another quote from Herodotus, this is in chapter 47 of, uh, of the same work. He tells a story about a corselet that was sent as a gift by King Amos II of Egypt to Sparta, and he says that it was, quote, ornamented with gold and fleeces from the trees. Mm. And in Lee's explanation, this probably means it was padded with cotton that had been acquired from the cotton plant, fleeces from the trees. Lee also cites the ancient Greek writer Tesius, uh, that's usually spelled C-T-E-S-I-A-S, uh, quote, Tesius also, who was the contemporary of Herodotus and was made prisoner and kept by the king of Persia as his court physician for 17 years, was acquainted with the use of a kind of wool, the produce of trees, for spinning and weaving amongst the natives of India. For he mentions in his Indica a fragment quoted by Photius, quote, tree garments, and that he thus referred to clothing made from these tree fleeces, we have testimony of Vero. Quote, Tesius says that there are in India trees that bear wool. And also uh, one of Alexander the Great's military commanders named Nearchus apparently spoke with wonder about trees in India that somehow bore wool like sheep, which was of a surpassing whiteness. Uh, Theophrastus, on the other hand, uh, shares the following about the island of Tylos in the Persian Gulf. Quote, wool-bearing trees which grow there abundantly have leaves like the vine but smaller. They bear no fruit, but the pod containing the wool is about the size of an apple while it is closed, and when it is ripe, it opens. The wool is then gathered from it and woven into clothes of various qualities, some inferior, but others of great value. And um, 
Karuba uh, says that the word Theophrastus uses for apple, um, Milan is also used for sheep. Mm. Oh, you can immediately see how that would perhaps cause some confusion. Yeah. Uh, now, there's another thing Lee gets into where I feel I need to quote for him, from him <laughs> directly for his comments on our old friend Pliny the Elder, whom he blames for a literary blunder that introduces one of the main components of the medieval version of the legend. So uh, this is this is Lee characterizing Pliny. He says, Then comes Pliny, who, incompetent and worthless as a naturalist, though admirable <laughs> as a writer, obscured this subject as he did many others. In his natural history, he mentions cotton in four different paragraphs and in every one of them inaccurately. <laughs> he confuses cotton with flax and the fabrics woven of it with linen and treats of silk as a downy substance scraped from the leaves of trees. And in transcribing or translating the passage from Theophrastus relating to the wool-bearing trees, he distorts the author's words and states that, quote, these trees bear gourds the size of a quince, which burst when ripe and display balls of wool out of which the inhabitants make cloths like valuable linen. Pliny, therefore, seems to have been the author of the gourd portion of the story, which afterwards obtained currency in Western Europe. Okay, so going all the way back to John Mandeville, remember he's writing about the Gowardies, the, yes. the gourds, uh, that Lee makes a pretty compelling case here that this is just a result of Pliny the Elder mistranslating the work of another ancient historian. Wow. So, in all kinds of ancient Greek and Roman literature, you have people who are not very familiar or not at all familiar with the cotton plant or with textiles made from it. So, you can imagine their confusion if they, say, visit India and, and see, what, see what's being done with cotton there. Or if they encounter a garment brought from India, they would be like, huh? So, there, wait, there's a sheep in this tree or the tree is growing wool somehow? Like – it's kind of like trying to imagine a tree growing meat or giving milk. Yeah, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the last episode. If you're if you're not aware of the actual gulf between the development of mammals and plants, you might encounter something like this and think, well, you know, wolf, wolfum trees? Well, what else is possible? Yeah. But I do really like this theory, and I think it, it does match up with everything we know about, about cotton plants as well. Because, you know, briefly, accounts of cotton plants goes back uh, – th these accounts go, go back quite a ways, at least to Neolithic sites in what is now India and Pakistan. Uh, 5,500 BCE is a date that is uh, frequently given out. Evidence of cotton usage even dates back a good 5,000 years in Mesoamerica. But it wasn't until the late medieval period that cotton became known of in Europe, and it's exact origin wasn't understood at first, other than it came from a plant. Here is something like wool, and it comes from a plant. Yeah. So, yeah, I feel like this theory seems quite sensible. You can imagine how these accounts would have drifted and grown as they were related from individual to individual, from book to book, from language to language, translation and mistranslation uh, in place, etc. Yeah, Lee, Lee argues that the legend arises from embellishment of stories originally based upon ambiguity or confusion in literary sources. And this has two major factors. One is the misinterpretation of ambiguous or figurative language. And the other is the superficial visual similarity of two completely different objects. 
And so the direct linguistic example Lee gives is that, okay, what you originally have is reports by people like Herodotus and others of a plant that, quote, bore as its fruit fleeces, which surpassed those of lambs in beauty and excellence. And this was soon paraphrased and garbled by other authors as, quote, a plant bearing fruit within which was a little lamb having a fleece of surpassing beauty and excellence. So the, the fact that there is in India actually a tree with pods that bear wool gets paraphrased, mistranslated, embellished into all these other stories. A plant that's got gourds, it's got lambs in them, or perhaps it <laughs> merged with the pre-existing weird stories about a ferocious beast who is tied to the ground by a stem that attached to the navel. Well, what if that beast was actually one of these, these lamb plants or these sheep plants, and that's where the wool comes from? So even though Lee was writing in the 1880s, I think this etiology of the legend still holds up pretty well. It seems totally plausible to me. Absolutely. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. 
Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, uh, originally, I was, I was thinking about getting into related creatures of myth and legend here, and I uh, I do, and I think we're going to save uh exploration of other uh, specimens for for later perhaps but i do want to read just a quick quote from um, from uh, jorge luis borges in his book of imaginary beings uh, he says we might recall another such case that of the mandrake or mandagora which screams like a man when it is pulled from the ground there is also in one of the circles of hell that sad forest of suicides from whose quote broken splints come words and blood at once and that tree dreamed by Chesterton, which devoured the birds that nested in its branches and which put out feathers instead of leaves when springtime came. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's a great book, by the way, the Book of Imaginary Beings. And he, he chronicles several different um, beasts that were dreamed by various writers that he was familiar with, uh, uh, you know, which makes sense. Uh, Borges was, was very interested in dreams as well as creatures and, and mazes and daggers and so forth. Uh, <laughs> but I think we might be able to come back and do something on the Mandrake. Uh, I was doing some more reading on that, and I was like, well, this, this too may have legs and demand its own episode. Mm. Now, one thing we sort of teased in the last episode that I wanted to get to as well is the idea of, of this. Will the, will the vegetable lamb... The, the vegetable lamb of Tartary, will it ever become a reality? Now, on one level, we have to say, yeah, no matter how like, mad science-y your mad science ideas are, I think the, the idea of, say, genetically engineering a plant that grows a fully-bodied sheep is ridiculous. I mean, again, we yeah. come back to that gulf between these organisms. Right. And also, like, why would you do that growing a fully formed lamb that had, like, a brain and was grazing on the plants around it? <laughs> well, it's mad science, Joe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So, Matt's assuming you just want to do it for the heck of it, even mm -hmm. then I'm skeptical that that'll ever happen. Well, it, that, or, or alien mad scientists, they just read plenty and they think this is what's up. Um, yeah. But uh, so, so, we can set that aside, I think. But, uh, you know, it is interesting, though, from a modern perspective. Uh, we, we have to to ponder the fact that okay, 
we're talking about this vegetable lamb, and we are seeing some amazing advancements in recent decades and recent years concerning flesh that feels very much at home in the imagined gardens of Tartary. Uh, for starters, there's, of course, the, uh, the realm of plant-based meat alternatives. Now, the practice of using plant products to, to simulate meat is, of course, nothing new and can be found in various cultures. Uh, because remember, while, while modern cuisines are sometimes based on meat for every meal, uh, this is not the sort of thing that traditional societies could necessarily depend on. Certainly, you can, you can find some instances of, say, Arctic cultures that depend quite heavily on meat, but other times like meat is something that is a part of a diet that otherwise has a lot of uh, uh, fruits and vegetables in it, and uh, and you're not going to necessarily have that kill, have that meat that's going to be a part of your diet day to day. Yeah, for a number of reasons. Many of them are economic, yeah. Yeah. So for starters, I guess we should point out that various fruits and vegetables have long been prized for their meat-like textures, uh, even if they're, they're not being overtly described as such. And uh, I'm not going to get into a lot of detail on these because it becomes more complicated nailing down meat substitute definitions uh, with foods that are not themselves food products. For instance, if you cook an eggplant or a jackfruit the right way, prepare it the right way, you get some strong meat vibes. But I'm not sure we can really classify a culinary process like that as something that is that can be defined clearly as a meat substitute. Yeah, and I don't know how often some of these uh, substances that are considered meat substitutes in 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 dishes today, how how often they were originally thought of that way. Like right. uh, th- there's a lot of uses of say tofu in Chinese cuisine that seem to me to indicate that it's not being treated as just like well here's an alternative to meat. It's it's a food in its own right. It's just a food like any other food that has its own qualities that are prized. And uh, I, I feel like I can appreciate it that way. But I know a lot of times Americans might think of tofu as like, okay, this is something you have instead of meat. Right. And I, th- I think with the tofu example, um, you, you know, when you're talking, you know, we're talking about tofu, we're talking about uh, coagulated soy milk. Uh, so, you know, it's soybean based and it's thought to date back about 2000 years to China. And so you, you have something that, you know, e- even if you're definitely classifying it as a meat substitute, it doesn't mean that it's going to be in a dish that's devoid of meat. Uh, right. You look at a lot of Chinese, traditional Chinese dishes, and they have a lot of ingredients, and sometimes there may be a little bit of meat in there. If you had meat, you might throw it in just because it's going to add to the flavor and all, but it's not, you know, it's not going to be a, uh, just a, a big old, necessarily a big old chunk of meat out there on the plate. We, we get into this a bit in our invention episode on chopsticks and oh, why yeah. chopsticks were so uh, well utilized, at least for various Chinese cuisines within a large portion of Chinese history. I think I've gone on record on the show before about my love of mapo tofu. It's one of my favorite dishes, but yeah, most of the time there's going to be some kind of meat in it. So if you're like a vegetarian, be check beforehand. Mm. Uh, tofu, of course, can be super delicious. I just had some last night. Um, it was um, uh, it was uh, it would have been marinated, and then it had also been uh, battered, and then I it was fried up. It was super good. Had it on uh, on like uh, on on buns like a burger. Mm-hmm. Now, some other of the the, the main uh, meat substitutes out there. We of course have uh, Satan, um, and uh, that is the, the gluten based meat alternative that dates back uh, probably to sixth century China. 
We have tempeh. This is a fermented soybean cake. And while the details of its origin are, are seem to be subject to debate, it seems to have uh, originated in Indonesia, but the time period varies from centuries ago to thousands of years ago. Uh, and I'm not sure exactly uh, what the predominant theory is there. Mm. Uh, in Chinese traditions, we also have mock duck. This is um, a fake duck meat that's uh, another gluten-based product that I believe dates back to medieval China. Uh, have you had mock duck before, Joe? I have not. Uh, it, it can be quite good. It, uh, I've had it before where I was like, this is great. I look forward to having more of it. And I've had it before, too, where I'm like, I'm not so certain about this mock duck. <laughs> uh, but it, I have had it before where it's really good. Yeah. You can frequently purchase it. I've never prepared anything with it myself, but you can get it like in cans. Hmm. So suffice to say, yes, you can, you know, we've, we've long known that you can take plants and things derived from plants and you can make things that, that uh, scratch your itch for, uh, uh, for, for actually consuming meat. But of course, today we have uh, a number of more technologically advanced examples. You know, we have artificial plant-based meats such as, uh, you know, Beyond Meat. Uh, uh, that's a company that makes beef, pork, and poultry substitutes. You have Impossible Meat that uh, I think is mo mostly known for the Impossible Burger. Um, Beyond Meat, I've read, is based on pea protein, rice protein, mung bean protein, and various other plant products, including red beet juice, uh, <laughs> which is interesting to give it that kind of uh, bloody consistency. Yeah, simulate the, uh, the myoglobin. Yeah, and then impossible meat is based on the the the, the heme heme molecule, uh, a precursor to uh, hemoglobin, and uh, processing various plant ingredients to replicate it. But then there's this, and, and those and those products are fine. I've I've greatly enjoyed uh, uh, some of these plant based uh, meat alternatives, uh, especially of late. But then there's this realm beyond the realm of cultivated or cultured or cell-based meats in which actual animal cells are grown in a lab setting. Right. So this would be talking about actually like the cells themselves are animal muscle cells, but they're not growing in an animal's body. They're just growing on some other substrate. Right. Now to be, be clear, they're not growing on plants. I'm not, <laughs> not some, yeah. suggesting that, but, but it's not, it's not merely a fact of it resembling meat or tasting like meat. It is meat. It is, but it is meat that is grown uh, in like a lab setting, as opposed to you know growing as part of an organism in a domestic or wild scenario. I've been reading about this in in bits and pieces from years, and always very interested in it. Uh, and I, I hadn't checked in in a while to see like what the prog what the recent progress on this kind of stuff is. Well, th there seems to be a lot of movement, and there's been a lot of funding that has gone into it. Um, I think some of the big questions are going to be like, okay, how does this actually roll out as a commercial uh, product? Uh, you know, at what point do we reach this this place in its development where it's truly economically feasible and so forth? Uh, and these are concerns with any kind of innovation, right? We've talked about that before on invention. Like, it's one thing to create the thing, but then how does it become affordable and desired, et cetera? Yeah. But I was reading uh, about this a little bit, so I was curious what the, the latest was. And uh, for instance, there's a company in Australia called Val Foods. I was reading about them on The Conversation in an article by Catherine Wynn and Michelle Colgrave. And they're already growing pork, chicken, kangaroo, alpaca, and water buffalo. 
Now, none of this is commercially available yet, but it gives you a taste of what's possible. Uh, I've also read about lion meat being produced in such a manner by, uh, by a different company. Uh, because I guess the thing is, it's all on the table if the meat is sourced from a lab rather than a farm or the wild. Oh, yeah. I mean, you don't even normally think about eating like land carnivore meat. <laughs> no, and I can't, I can't imagine I'd want to. Um, yeah. But I could see, I can see the, the the strategy here. Like the, the you want to get people interested in the novel aspect of it. You know, someone who might not otherwise be like, why would I, why would I go out and have a a lab grown hamburger when I can have a a hamburger from the wild? But if you offer them a lion burger, like what's their alternative? They're going to go out <laughs> and they're going to kill their own lion. They're going to uh, get lion meat on the black market. Interesting. Um, and and there, it does seem like there are a number of different Australian companies that are involved in this too. Um, so so companies like this are using some of the same biomanufacturing technologies that have been used in the pharmaceutical industry for years. And again, they've garnered a lot of investment, especially in recent years. Uh, and some of the the outline questions, you know, uh, come down to just how economically feasible does this become? Does it yeah. become desirable? Uh, by the, the population at large in the same way that plant-based meats seem to be becoming. Uh, so How I, fast can you, can you grow like large masses of, of meat from these starting cell cultures? Yeah, exactly. Uh, as for the taste, uh, I have to stress, I have not tried any of these myself. Uh, I have not had the opportunity to. But accounts I've read um, by such, such as documentarian Liz Marshall, who did a documentary titled Meet the Future with meat spelled like meat. Um, okay. Uh, you know, she says that, that it is meat and it tastes like meat. So it's not particularly uh, surprising. Uh, I've seen some other people weighing in where like, okay, maybe you can get into questions of texture. Uh, mm. But for the most part, like yeah. it's meat. It tastes like meat. One of the things I read about... Um this would have been many years ago now, but like some early prototypes of this uh, were, were people trying to make a, a lab grown burger. And one of the main comments was that like in many ways it tasted right, but it didn't have the fat content wasn't quite right yet. Mm -hmm. um, though I think that's the kind of thing that seems like that'd be pretty easy to get around. Yeah. Now, as far as actual lamb and sheep meat goes, because we are talking about the vegetable lamb of Tartary after all, uh, you know, lamb is is a mammal meat that many find quite delicious. And I have to say, back when I ate mammal meat, uh, I was really partial to a particular lamb tagine stew. Uh, so, it, uh, so definitely, it can be super delicious. Uh, and it's an animal that has a fairly large carbon footprint. So if you could find a way to produce that meat, uh, without you know having to to have the the same environmental uh, uh, impact, uh, then that would that would make a lot of sense. Yeah. And so at first I was thinking I was looking around and I wasn't finding anything and I was like okay maybe the the age of the vegetable lamb of Tartary um, uh, coming more to fruition is we're just not there yet. But as reported by Jennifer Marston on the Spoon, that's the Spoon Tech, which uh, is like a really cool looking like news blog about food technologies. Uh, according to Marston here, in 2021, the Australian cultivated meat company Magic Valley dubbed itself, quote, the world's first cultured lamb company. Uh, so they're, they're saying, this is it. We are going to be the ones that, that grow the sheep. Um, she also writes that while lamb consumption in the United States has been down in recent years, there's still a big market for it in many countries. So it makes sense for a company like this to to uh, you know to stake their claim 
to the lab-grown lamb meat of the future. Though, uh, again, I have not actually tried any of these um, the, these cultured or cultivated uh, meats, but I, I would love to have the opportunity to do so. I, I, I find this research very exciting. I think there's still a lot of questions about like where where we'll ultimately get to with these mm-hmm. technologies but uh, i mean there's a lot of a lot of movement behind them so i'm excited to see where it goes i agree it is very exciting oh one one kind of wants to be the john mandeville of the future that says i ate one of the lambs and it was delicious except this lamb was grown in a lab instead of inside a gourd now one thing i wonder about okay so we we, we see that they're already thinking about what are all the exotic animals of the natural world that people might wish to to eat that they normally wouldn't have access to. Will we go a step beyond? Will we see uh, chimeras uh, emerge? Oh. Will you be able to buy, say, manticore meat? Will you be able to eat dinosaur meat? Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess you already do if you eat chicken, but... Yeah. <laughs> it is, it's true. People are having their, their dino nuggies um, uh, regularly already. But, uh, but yeah, what, what else is possible? Woolly mammoth steak? Ooh, Wow. So somehow I imagine that'd be quite gamey. <laughs> anyway, should we wrap up there? Yeah, yeah. Let's go ahead and call it for this episode. But uh, yeah, there's there's a, a lot we could continue to discuss just in like the related realm of you know things like the mandrake. Uh, but then also we could we could easily go back to our previous discussion about plant intelligence, plant memory, plant communication, and explore this topic more. So in the meantime, we'd love to hear from everyone out there. Would you like to hear uh, more on this matter or related matters? Is there a particular direction you would like to see us go in? Uh, just write in and let us know. Uh, in the, the meantime, you can listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. We have our core episodes there on Tuesdays and Thursdays, listener mail on Mondays, a short form artifact or monster fact on Wednesday. And on Friday, we do Weird House Cinema. That's our time to set aside most important matters and just focus on a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.